0: Uh, that passage and also have the white bulletin in front of you with the outline. I think that will be helpful to you and indeed to me and uh, I'm going to get straight down to it and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. We pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love our minds may be filled with your truth and our lives may be equipped to serve and glorify your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Ruth had a miserable day. Uh, It began at six o'clock in the morning when she was woken up by her two older children having a noisy fight. And that was after a miserable night because she hardly had any sleep. Uh, The baby was sick and although she tried to get him back to sleep, that seemed to take forever. Then the car wouldn't start, so she missed the doctor's appointment. And then, of course, the brand-new washing machine broke down, so she was on the phone to the shop where she bought it, trying to get someone out to fix it. Uh, It was five minutes before she heard a real human voice on the other end of the phone. Um, But uh, it turned out that he was in the wrong department. And so the call had to be transferred. And another five minutes went by, uh, where she had to listen to annoyingly cheerful music, punctuated by an irritating voice saying, your business means the world to us. Uh, Please stay on the line. But uh, she comforted herself by rehearsing what she was going to say when she eventually was put through to a real human being. But then she remembered what she had read in her Bible that morning about how God had been amazingly patient to her despite the way she had treated him and he had sent his son to die for her. So when eventually somebody came on the line she managed to bite her tongue and not say some of the things she'd been planning to say. And then there's John. Uh, John has just started a new job with an advertising agency here in Cape Town. He, He loves the work, but one of the difficulties is that he hasn't been able to get to know the other people in the department. They all work very hard during the day, but they leave immediately after work to avoid the traffic. So he's really looking forward to the department social in a few days' time. Uh, When eventually the social comes around, he's really looking forward to some worthwhile conversations. But his hopes are dashed when he realises that most of them have already been drinking for at least an hour and they're showing no signs of slowing down. And John doesn't want to get drunk because he's a Christian. And yet he knows it's going to look very odd indeed if after a couple of beers he switches over to orange juice. So there's a battle going on in his mind. Uh, Should he fit in with them? Or should he do what the Bible says and refrain from drunkenness? Because he knows that when he's had too much he he finds it really rather difficult not to say or do things which he knows are displeasing to God. But then he realises what an easy decision it ought to be once he really thinks about the fact that Jesus died for him. And he thought to himself, oh, what really is a little embarrassment compared to that? And then there's Alan. Um, Alan has been looking forward to coming to church all week. He loves church. Uh, he loves seeing all his friends. He loves listening to the word of God being read And preached. But above all, he loves to sing. And Alan really sings. He sings at the top of his voice, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Now, which of those three would you say is worshiping God? I guess many people would immediately say, well, obviously it's Alan. Um, after all, he's in church. And uh, we tend to use the, the language of worship to speak about what goes on in church. And so we might say to somebody, mightn't we, where do you worship? Meaning, where do you go to church? And sometimes we limit the language of worship not just to what we do in church, but to one specific aspect of the service, namely, when we sing. But that, of course, is not what the Bible means when it speaks about worship. Certainly, we are uh, worshipping God when we sing praises to him, but in the Bible, worship involves the whole of our lives Offered in loving response to what God has done for us and for who He is. And that is the way of life that Paul the Apostle is calling us to in the light of everything that God has done for us in the Gospel. It's the great appeal of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which are actually the hinge of the entire letter. For 11 chapters, Paul has been spelling out the amazing good news of the Gospel. And then, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are the hinge. Because from now on, Paul is spelling out what we are to do in the light of everything that God has done for us. This is the lifestyle that should follow. And in these two verses, we have the the headlines, so to speak, And Paul gives us three essential ingredients of true worship. Number one, true worship, he says, requires a remembrance of God's mercy. Come with me to verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The word therefore is telling us that what Paul is about to say follows from everything he's already told us. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, here's what you need to do. What's the therefore, therefore is the question we're supposed to ask. What is it referring back to? And at the very least, it must be referring back to chapters 9 to 11, which we've been looking at together over the last few weeks. It's that astonishing section where Paul grapples with the issue that many, many Jewish people have not responded to the great good news that Jesus is the Messiah they've all been waiting for. Now that was an agonising truth for Paul, It was personally agonising because, of course, he himself was a Jew and most of his own people had rejected the Gospel message. But it wasn't only personally agonising, it was also theologically confusing because God had promised the Gospel first and foremost to the Jews and then through them to all nations. So, something's gone wrong. And in Romans 9-11, to Paul has spelt out for us the fact that God is in complete control of everything that's going on. Nothing has gone wrong. God is working out all his sovereign purposes, even when people reject him. So, just let's do a bit of revision here. Look at uh, verse 30, please, of chapter 11, which we looked at last week. Verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, can you see there that four times in three verses, Paul refers to God's mercy reaching different groups of people? First Gentiles and then Jews. And we saw that the way God did that was totally unexpected. We wouldn't have done it that way. But God did. And ever since then, the gospel has spread all the way round the world. But as chapter 12 begins, I think, as Alice mentioned earlier, Paul is looking even further back than chapters 9 to 11. Because the word mercy is a good summary of everything in Romans up to that point. It's actually not a bad word to summarise the entire Christian message. Because as we saw last week, the great problem in any of the world's religions is how can the gap be bridged between a holy God and a sinful people? And last week we saw that whichever religion you look at, the solution it provides to that problem always begins with the same three letters. M-E-R. And most religions continue that sequence of letters M-E-R-I-T. They make it all about what you do. If you want that gap to be bridged, you've got to do more and more and more. But the problem, of course, is that you can never actually be sure that you've done enough. Which is why religion... Always leaves you feeling either guilty or lacking in assurance, desperately trying to do more and more but never being sure whether you've done enough. Christianity is uniquely different because it's all about M-E-R-C-Y, mercy. Some of you may have heard the story of the deserter in the French army. His mother pleaded with the Emperor Napoleon, saying to him, surely he deserves mercy. And Napoleon replied, if he deserved it, there wouldn't be mercy. And you see, you and I don't actually deserve anything from God, except wrath. And Paul spelt that out really clearly for us, didn't he? right at the beginning of Romans. Romans chapters 1 to 3 spell out for us that every single human being on the the face of the earth, without exception, has fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul imagines different groups of people. He addresses them one by one. So there's the complete pagan. And Paul says, you've disobeyed God because his law is written on your heart, but you've rejected it. And then there's the the self-righteous moralist. And Paul says, yes, you too. You compare yourself to other people, but you don't even live up to your own standards. And then to religious people with religious privileges... He points to the gap between their belief and their behaviour. Everyone has fallen short of God's standards. And compared to God, none of us deserve anything except his condemnation. But then from the end of chapter 3 onwards, Paul spells out the amazing gifts that God offers to all who trust in Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. And there are two of these gifts. The first is a new status, justified, which means the gift of being in the right before God. But that's not all. Um, It's not as if God gives us a certificate which we sort of keep in our back pocket until the last day when we hand it back to God and we get into the new creation. No. We also get a new life even here on earth while we live. Because it's not just that Christ died for us, it's that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And he transforms us And he gives us a new desire, a new heart, a new intimacy with Almighty God, so that we can call him Father. And he gives us a new power, so that we can live, begin to live, the way Jesus did. Now all of that is the amazing mercy that God has been putting before us, Paul has been putting before us in Romans 1 to 8, and then explaining in chapters 9 to 11 how this mercy is available to literally anybody, and all they have to do is ask God for it. And that, you see, is the foundation for a life of worship. That is the foundation for the kind of life that God is calling us to. Now I know that most of you here this morning know these things. But the danger is that because we know them, we take them for granted. And as soon as we take them for granted, it's as if we're actually cutting off the oil supply from the engine of the Christian life. And can I say this morning that some of us have to admit that our Christian life is not as vibrant as it used to be at first. Our love for Jesus is just not as powerful as it was before. Compromises have crept into our lives. No one else really sees them, but we know about them. Now why has that happened? Well, more often than not, it's because we've begun to take God's mercy for granted. When we were first converted, it was amazing to think that although I deserved nothing but wrath and hell, God had loved me enough to send his son to die for me on the cross so that I could be forgiven and have a certain hope of heaven. But the problem is, Some of us have got used to that and it no longer grips us in the way that it did at first. So this morning I want to plead with us, with all of us, each one of us, day by day by day to acknowledge our sin before God. To say, I'm sorry. Now why is that? Well, I think we just need to be absolutely clear what's happening when we do it. You see, when we confess our sins, we are not being given a top-up cleansing. I think some of us might be confused about this. So let me say it again. When we confess our sins, God is not cleaning us up all over again because we were already completely clean from the very first moment we put our trust in Christ. But what we are doing, you see, is praising God for what he has already given us in Christ. So friends, let's remember day by day how much we deserve the wrath of God but delight all over again in everything he's given us in Jesus. Because true worship begins with a remembrance of God's mercy. Number two. True worship is an offering of my body to God. Look at verse one again. Therefore, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now Paul here is using the language of the sacrifices that were such a feature of Old Testament religion. And they were a temporary provision. So the idea was that the sinner could not possibly approach the holy God Without the death that they themselves deserve to die. That was the problem. But God graciously provided an alternative. He said, You can kill an animal. And as you kill the animal, it symbolically takes your sin onto itself. It needs to be killed. Its blood needs to be shed. And it needs to be shown in the presence of God to demonstrate that atonement has been made, that a sacrifice has been offered. Now, of course, there was actually no way that an animal could be an adequate substitute for a human being. So, in a sense, those sacrifices, repeated day after day after day, they were actually... Prophecy, prophecies, prophecies, yeah. Because what they were doing is they were, they were pointing beyond themselves to the one perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And once he had died, once for all, there was no need for any more sacrifices. So, we don't come to offer sacrifices in order to atone for our sins before God. That's not what Paul means at all. You see, he's not asking us to bring a sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice. He's saying in the light of all that God has done for you, through the sacrifice of Jesus, Now offer your bodies to God in grateful, adoring worship. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of you know the story of the chicken and the pig. Uh, They were discussing the different contributions that each made to a traditional cooked breakfast of bacon and egg. And uh, the pig said to the chicken, It's all right for you because you just make a donation. But for me, it's total commitment. Can I say that for many people, the Christian life is a bit like the chicken. Uh, You know, they offer the egg, which doesn't really cost them very much because, let's face it, there's another one tomorrow and another one the day after, and another one the day after that. And in exactly the same way, you and I can fall into the trap of offering God Sunday morning, but not Monday, and not Saturday night. We offer him our home life, but not our working life. Just a little bit of our lives, which if we're honest, doesn't actually cost us very much at all. But friends, true worship calls for total Commitment. It's not just a declaration in a, in a pious moment when we're singing in church on Sunday morning. That's very easy to do. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Now I think that one of the privileges of our fellowship here is that some of you have had to take up a very heavy cross indeed in order to follow Jesus, the cost has been great in terms of finances, um, in terms of disruption to your families, in terms even of persecution. Back in 2010, there was the last Lausanne conference here in Cape Town, and one of the speakers there was from North Africa. And in his address, he said this, we tell people before they become Christians that they will receive three things. They will receive forgiveness, they will receive great joy, and they will receive great persecution. Now, I don't think in Western culture, Cape Town, we even remotely think about saying that last thing to people. And although the pressures on Christians are increasing here day by day by day, by and large, they are still tiny, aren't they, in comparison to the pressures in other countries. And the problem, you see, is that the danger here is we think that becoming a Christian is a lifestyle choice. Uh, It might make a small adjustment to our diaries on one or two days a week, perhaps, and in one or two minor areas of our lives. But not, it's not really the offering of our bodies as living sacrifices, when we would say to God, here I am, I am wholly and completely and utterly yours. Now that offering of our bodies can be worked out in all the different areas of our lives with all the different parts of our bodies. So think of the tongue. My tongue doesn't actually belong to me. When I became a Christian, I should have offered everything that I am and everything that I have to the Lord God for his use as an offering of worship. So, how can I use my tongue in worship to God in every area of life? Think about that. I mean, it's a tiny organ, isn't it? But what tremendous power it has, either for good or for harm. So, do I use my tongue to spread gossip, uh, to assassinate other people's character, uh, to make cutting remarks? Or do I use my tongue to encourage people to to build them up, to point them to Christ? Or what about my feet? Do my feet take me to places where I know that I might end up doing things I shouldn't be doing? Or to places where I actually know I'm going to do some good? Perhaps to a depressed neighbour Or to an elderly person who lives alone and doesn't get many visitors. Or to build a relationship with somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus. What about my eyes? What am I going to allow my eyes to see? Where are they looking on the internet? Or on Netflix? Or as I walk around the shopping malls of Cape Town? Am I using my eyes to feed my sinful nature? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Or am I actually disciplined in averting my eyes from certain images? And am I using my eyes to look at the world through godly spectacles? So that I'm consciously looking for opportunities to praise God. So for example, if I'm looking at a beautiful sunset and there are plenty of them here in Cape Town, it's it's thank you Lord, rather than just admiring it, taking a selfie and forgetting all about it. Am I seeing other human beings with godly eyes? So rather than simply being impressed with their good looks and their impressive track record, I'm actually seeing souls that are lost without Christ and desperately need to meet him. How do we use our hands? Some of the the regular jobs that uh, we do seem so kind of ordinary and insignificant, especially the jobs we do with our hands. And I know that some of you have got Boring jobs to do this coming week. Uh, Perhaps it's typing out an assignment again. Or doing the washing up, or doing the laundry. But everything we do, even the mundane jobs that we do with our hands, they're actually opportunities for worship. And we can do them for his glory. Uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, had a little plaque in her kitchen by the sink that said, divine worship offered here three times daily. That's a good little reminder, isn't it? I rather like that. I wonder where you need that plaque in your life. Uh, Perhaps it's as a screensaver on your computer. Divine worship offered here. Or, where are you going to be at nine o'clock tomorrow morning? As you walk through the office door, or you sit at that desk, or you make that phone call, or you attend that weekly meeting, or you go to that lecture, just imagine the little plaque in front of you. Divine worship offered here. And especially, especially when you come to church... Say to yourself, I am here to worship God with all that I am and with all that I have. Because worship requires an offering of my body to God. And then thirdly and lastly, true worship requires a willingness to be different Look at verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Can I say that the call to worship God is a call to be a non-conformist. And I think that's immediately frightening for most of us, because most of us want to fit in. We don't actually want to stand out from the crowd, especially in the immediate circle of our friends and family. We don't like to be different. But God says, very clear, do not conform to the pattern of this world. One of the biggest challenges facing the church today is something called syncretism. Syncretism is combining the worship of the God of the Bible with the worship of something or someone else. Now in parts of this country, here in South Africa, that might be, that second thing might be ancestor worship. Uh, So you will find people who worship Christ, but also worship their ancestors. In fact, there was a guy in my last year at college who was doing that. And we look at that and we think to ourselves, well, that's really rather primitive, and I wouldn't do that. But what about the syncretism in our own lives? are we not worshipping God on Sunday and other gods on Monday morning? I mean, you know what the other gods are as well as I do. I don't have to spell them out for you. Because a false god or an idol can be anything that we make into an ultimate thing in our lives. Which means it can be things that in themselves are good can be your career. It can be academic success. It can be health. It can be lifestyle. It can be clothing. It can be your family. But Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other or you will hate the one and love the other. So how different are we Really? from the world around us. What really does come first in your life? Selfism is the great idolatry in most Western cultures. That is the belief deep down that I must come first. Everything is about me and my wants. We're surrounded by it and it's very hard actually not to contract the disease in some form. So, uh, a few years ago, a a female politician in the UK was caught having an affair with the Prime Minister. Uh, He was married. And um, afterwards, she was asked if she had any regrets about that. And she replied, well, no, not really, because um, all of the best things I've done are the things I've done for me. Now, not many people would talk about themselves and that aspect of our character quite so boldly, but can I say there is a strain of selfism in all of us? And I wonder if our Christian faith goes just as far as it suits our comfort, our self-image our security, our popularity, but no further. Jesus says, you've got to be different. God's word says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One translator takes that verse and puts it slightly differently. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould, but let God remould your minds from within. Now that's where it begins, you see. God takes his word and by his spirit helps us to understand his word so that our whole attitude to the world, uh, to ourselves, is completely reformed. And what the Bible gives us when we do that is a, is a complete and perfect world view. And the more that we have that Christian mindset, that Christian worldview, the more clearly we see who God is and what He's done for us and where the world is heading and the more we will be able to discern what God's will is. Now, it might not come to us in precise terms, but we will sense what the right thing is to do in any given situation, because we're living in the light of the great truths about God. You see, too much of our Christianity is what the experts would describe as pietism. Which means that we, we apply the Christian faith to the little areas of our lives. And so Christianity becomes for us a useful escape when things are stressful. P.W. Water was the state president here in the last years of apartheid. And at one point he said this, I read the Bible every day. I find the business of being state president very exhausting and stressful. I find it helps me to take my mind off everything to read the Bible. So, so for him, reading the Bible was a distraction from reality. And can I say, I think there is a danger that we might use Christianity to take our minds off thinking about the complicated and the difficult things in life. But authentic Christianity gives us a total worldview. It is intensely practical. And the more we understand God's thoughts, And the more we think God's thoughts after him and live accordingly, well then our Christian life will be authentically different. Friends, how are you and I going to resist the the spiritual and the moral drift that has got South Africa in its grip? And make no mistake, it has. Well, the only way that we will be able to resist that is if we have a robust worldview. if we take the Bible seriously and think about what it says. If we ask ourselves regularly, what does the Bible say about my marriage, my job, my attitude to possessions, my academic studies, politics, education, the whole future of the world. And as we discover what the Bible has to say about these things, and not just a favourite verse, because we're all experts at doing that. No, what does the whole council of God have to say about these things? God shows us how to adjust our lives accordingly so that we live worshipful lives. Lives that bring honour and glory to him. Let me ask you, what do you think the worship is like in our church? If you ask that question, I guess uh, many people would say, um, I like the music, I love the songs, the acoustics could be a bit better. But, friends, important as those things are, can you see they are secondary? because the real test of your worship and my worship is how we live, how we live individually, how we live corporately in all of our dealings with each other. That is the test of whether we really are offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Let me pray. Loving Father, please help us to appreciate more and more the amazing sacrifice of your Son for us and your amazing mercy. In the light of everything you've done for us, help us to offer everything we have and everything we are in your service. We ask it for the glory of your name. Amen.